From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome. It's Rabina Ahmed Haq, the host of For What It's Worth. Thank you so much for joining us again on the program. If this is your first time tuning in to my show, Welcome to a brand new uh, listener, and I'm glad that you are taking some time to learn about your personal finances, uh, issues that we may have at work here on the show. We focus on pocketbook issues that really impact everyday Canadians. We don't worry so much about what's going on on Bay Street or Wall Street. We worry about what's going on there and how it affects us, because a lot of those stories sometimes can be uh, complicated or told in a way that's not natural. And so we may feel like we just tune out of them. So I try to take those big stories and really break them down so that we can understand why we should be paying more attention, whether it be a big announcement out of Ottawa, whether it be something happening halfway across the world, why does it matter to us and why does it matter to our pocketbook? Uh, This week has been really interesting. There's been a lot of big news stories uh, coming out, especially around retirement. There's a new survey by Deloitte. They do a lot of these kinds of surveys of what Canadians are thinking when it comes to their big financial goals. And they say, a survey that they did, only 14% of Canadians that they surveyed who are reaching the age of retirement, so this is typically 65, so they spoke to 4,000 Canadians between 55 and 64, are ready to retire. That means the majority, the vast majority of us, that would be 86% of us, are not ready in that same category. And it's for a number of reasons. Uh, One is workplace pensions, which used to be a staple in Canada, have pretty much disappeared. Um, Even if you have a pension, it's often not a, a DB pension that's a defined benefit plan where you know exactly how much money you're getting. And even if you're in a program, or rather in a workplace where there is a pension program, A lot of people change jobs very often. Every seven years is the average that we change jobs. So those pensions don't have time to grow and uh, get uh, and become a significant amount. You may take a payout when you leave one job rather than letting it sit there. Uh, So that's a really worrisome stat that Deloitte's come out with. There are a couple of things that you can do if you are nearing retirement and worried about how you're going to afford it. Um, Downsizing is number one. So if you're sitting on an asset like a home that you've paid off, that's a really great way to to get some uh, get some money that you can spend to increase your cash flow. Um, you know, you may have to cut back on some of your lifestyle uh, goals that you had. If you planned on spending summers and uh, rather winters in Florida or golfing, maybe some of those things are not a reality. I know those are pretty stereotypical retirement things, but if there are expensive hobbies that you thought you might be participating in, uh, this might be a time to think about how you can tweak them. And the last one is you could work longer. We are living longer and uh, working a few years longer may help you alleviate some of that financial pressure. We have a fantastic show for you today. We are going to be talking about the relationship between our friendships and how our wealth is affected by that with a certified financial planner. She's talking about how that relationship works. And also, what do you expect from your boss on the holidays, during the holidays? Do you expect them to give you a gift, some sort of bonus? We'll be talking to um, someone from Amazon Business Canada. They did a survey about what employees expect from employers and what employers are willing to give their employees this holiday season. You might be surprised by how much they're willing to fork out. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to speak to Robin Thompson. She's a certified financial planner to talk about our relationship between friends 
and money. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck. This is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. It's no secret that most of us are influenced by the people we spend the most time with, the way we dress, the music we listen to, and where we go on holiday. All of that is affected by what the people are doing around us. Joining us today is Robin Thompson. She is a certified financial planner and money expert. She recently wrote about how our friendships can impact our pocketbook. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Tell me, what it is, what is it about our friendships that can affect the way we spend our money? Oh my God, there are so many things. And I think that we all have personal experience with this. Um, you know, but many of the choices that we make, everything from our neighborhood that we live in to the brands that we buy and the clubs that we joined, they're influenced by our social connections. And it's not surprising that our financial behaviors are also swayed by our friends through, again, social observation or learning. And this can have a huge impact on our wealth. In fact, one study actually showed that people are more likely to buy a costly financial asset if a close friend has one or even if they've tried to buy it. Yeah, and it's I'm I'm guilty of that too. Or I'll go to someone's house, I like something in their home, and then I'm buying it like on the way home, or even the next day I'm online purchasing it just because I was so mesmerized by it, and it wasn't in my budget. It wasn't something that I wanted to buy. Um, how how do we how do we even recognize that we're influenced to buy something that, um, you know, it's not a bad thing to to buy something that you think is beautiful and, and you want it in your home as well. But how do we recognize that maybe that is affecting our ability to save for the future and build our wealth? Well, I guess to start, it's great that your friends have great taste, right? We always want to have friends that have great taste. If we leave their house and we're like, oh, that wasn't great, the best decor, then, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, um, inspire you to to sort of push yourself forward. And I think with our friendships, they influence, again, what we wear, how we spend our money. But sometimes it's really hard to keep up with the Joneses, as we say. If your friends are big spenders, um, it can be tempting to try to keep up with them. Um, maybe they want to go to expensive restaurants. Maybe they have expensive furnishings in their homes. Maybe they want to book luxury travel. And saying no sometimes could mean that you may feel like it could hurt the relationship or you could lose the relationship. But the flip side to this is that if you try to keep up, you could actually derail your financial goals and peace of mind. Um, so it's really about understanding what it is that's important to you, having an appreciation for nice things, but then also understanding what that comes in as it looks like for your own spending, saving, investing, and, and budgeting and what your needs are. Um, I think it's really important to understand your why behind you make these purchasing decisions. You know, uh, being with uh, in, being with people who overspend has always been something that I, I'm really uncomfortable with because I, you know, I, I have been my whole life quite frugal. And if somebody is a big spender, I often just, you know, eventually find ways to spend less and less time with them. But sometimes you have friends that you love them. They're from you know, your childhood. They're part of your family. You know, we talk about our chosen family and you don't want to cut that friendship off. You don't even want to minimize your time with them. But somehow you want to address the fact that being with them makes you spend money that you don't actually, you can't actually afford to spend. Well, I think one of the things that we need to look at when we're talking about our friends is if they are our friends and they are people that are in our lives, 
you know, having an honest conversation about where you are and the value that you put on your money and where you spend your money should be an open and two-way, two-way street. I think that sometimes we feel pressure to try to um, match what they do. And if they want to go to the most expensive restaurants, then, you know, we go along because we want to be able to have that experience and we don't want to feel left out. But having a conversation about this is what my my value around how I spend my money looks. And this is where I feel that I want to spend my money. And it may not be aligned with how you want to spend your money. So where can we find a middle ground so that we both have the opportunity to have, you know, experience the relationship that we have in our friendship, but that one of us isn't always feeling like we're trying to spend too much and the other one's trying to spend too little. So it's really just about being open and honest with your friendship group about this is this is what i this is what i need for myself and my life and sometimes it's not even a question of you know is it affordable it's about is this providing value for me is a 20 dollar you know cocktail at an expensive fruit fruit restaurant down downtown any better than you know a 4 dollar coffee you know up north and in a trendy little coffee shop so i think it's about understanding the value of both what you're spending your money on and the value that you have within your friendship and what that looks like yeah, a long time ago, I learned the phrase, I can't afford it. Even, you know, sometimes when you can't afford it, but it's just not something that you had in your budget, it can be really difficult to say that uh, because it, it makes people feel a little bit insecure, I think, and a little vulnerable, uh, understandably. But, um, you know, really knowing your limits is, is is number one, like not getting influenced, like you said, to buy a round of $20 cocktails. All of a sudden you're thinking, uh, why did I even do that? You talk about this in your blog post about the spending traps and how we can avoid them. Uh, one of those things, is buyer's remorse. Um, how, how can we deal with that if, if we find ourselves buying things uh, because we're trying to keep up with our friends, we're trying to fit in, and we're then when we get that credit card bill feeling like that was just a very bad idea financially? Especially when it has a 19% interest rate attached to it, right? So, Absolutely. I mean, those are those are things that, especially in this day, you know, with high interest rates and where we are in the world, things are a lot more expensive. So these decisions have an even more of an impact on your life. And 93% of Canadians actually experience buyer's remorse. And where we're seeing the most regret are in things that are like clothing, shoes, jewelry, electronics, where people feel the least amount of regret is on experiences. So we're really seeing the shift towards what is the experience of the life I want to have versus, you know, what is the next widget or gidget? So keeping a spending diary, um, even for a couple of months, will help you have a better understanding of what triggers your overspending. You know, what exactly is it that um, sort of pushed you to make that impulsive purchase? Which members of your social group are most likely to influence you to overspend? And if you did regret something, what did you regret buying and why? Because once you identify your spending patterns and what triggers you, you'll be able to create strategies to manage this ahead of time. So you're not there at the last minute saying, okay, I'm just going to go along with my friends because this is what they're doing versus being pretty um, sort of steadfast in your decision, in your value, in your money and in your spendings. But you need to be able to see it in order to make the decisions. You can surround yourself with people who have similar money values uh, that, that you do, and you can feel very good about spending time with them. But social media uh, can creep up into your feeds, uh, people spending money on things that maybe you hadn't thought about, being influenced by what celebrities are buying. How do we how do we protect ourselves against that if that is something that we're finding is becoming a problem where we see Kim Kardashian wearing something and all of a sudden that becomes a priority and you know you can't afford it? 
Yeah, well, depending on how we interact with social media, it can have a big influence on our financial well-being. Um, and this can be both positive and negative because spending is visible, but saving and investing are invisible. And our focus sometimes is going towards lifestyle. So what you really want to make sure is you're you're being a smart consumer when it comes to social media and, you're, and you avoid getting lured into these displays of lavish spending, whether it be a Kim Kardashian or whether it be people that own private jets or whether they are, you know, their spending becomes beyond where you feel comfortable. Also stay away from poor financial advice from uninformed influencers that may not be people who are credited to give you the financial advice that you're looking for. So you want to use some smart social media strategies. You want to take some periodic breaks from scrolling. Um, so if you do find that you're scrolling and you're hitting click to cart, click to cart, click to cart, and you're being influenced by that, you want to put a break or an interruption in there. So that pattern starts to, to start not be so dominant in your life. You want to make sure again, that you're carefully screening these financial influencers and you want to understand your emotions. If certain posts make you feel bad about yourself or they trigger you to spend beyond your means, unfollow, unfollow, unfollow. Social media is meant to interact with people. It's meant to give you ideas or inspiration. It's not meant to make you feel bad about yourself. It's not meant for you to spend beyond your means. And 90% of our financial decisions are based on emotions and only 10% are based on logic. So we need to have a good understanding of who we are as people and what influences us. And then we need to be able to make those strong financial decisions that align with our core values um, and that essentially bring us the life that we want. Because the life that we think about, the life that we dream about, the life that we talk about is the life that we have. So if you start having different conversations with yourself and what's important to you, how you spend your money and what you're influenced by will also start to show up differently. Yeah, and I also really like how you uh, mentioned in the blog about how uh, spending is very, uh, sorry, uh, you know, things that we show that we spend money on is very public, but then the savings part, we don't really talk about that as much. Talk to me a little bit about how sometimes we not we may not know what's going on behind the scenes of, of people who are, who are uh, presenting themselves as uh, big spenders. We may not really understand um, th their financial situation from their posts. And that's the thing is that, you know, social media, you know, it isn't real. I mean, people are putting their best effort forward. They're putting into the world what they want you to see. And in some cases, they could be paid. They could be um, social media influencers that have different collaborations. I mean, they could be repping a certain brand. So there's a, there's a whole host of different reasons why people behave the way they behave on social media. And I think you need to look at this and understand, you know, what is the face value of this? And what is their spending and saving and investing habits. I mean, if there's always pictures or videos of them going out and, you know, eating at the top restaurants and flying in the top resorts or cars, and maybe they have a different financial situation than you, or maybe they don't, and they live on credit and they live on debt and they don't save and they don't invest for their future. And that's really where it becomes very dangerous. Your investments, your savings, your spending, your needs and your wants all need to be part of a bigger plan. So you can start to look at how you're behaving and why you're behaving. Generally, I take a look at a specific rule. So 50% of your budget should go towards your needs. Those are things to keep the lights on. So your mortgage or your rent, your food, your utilities, your car, all the things that you need to be able to survive. You want to have 30% going towards your sort of spending or what you want to spend your money on. Um, and then at a very minimum, you want to see 20% in savings and investments. You want to make sure that you are investing for your future. You're investing in yourself for yourself. 
And if the decisions you're making based on other people's posts or other people's influence is not aligning with yours, or you're not clear what yours is, in 20 years from now, you could look up at your investment statements and your savings and be like, wow, I've just wasted my money on gadgets and widgets and experiences that mean nothing to me, but they were important to other people. And this is where we get back to that original conversation of regret. If you have the feeling of regret, listen to it and understand that your behaviors are going to determine the net worth that you have in your life. Not the latest purse, not the latest pair of shoes. You have nice things, but keep it within a range that you're comfortable with. We're speaking to Robin Thompson. She is a certified financial planner and money expert. Uh, Robin, uh, arguably one of the most uh, biggest spending seasons is upon us, the holidays, and we are so influenced by what other people are buying for their children, for their spouses, for their friends, and we feel like we need to do the same in order to show that we love and care about people. What's your best advice for someone who is feeling like they just don't have the money this year uh, to spend, uh, maybe like how they see others spending, uh, but they still want to uh, be able to do uh, spread all that joy that 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 the holidays bring the holidays are about coming together about gathering with the people that we love and I don't know about you but I love giving I feel like I get more from giving than receiving um, by wide margin and maybe that's selfish but I think that when it comes to what you're going to spend money on it's about having the same conversations that you would have with your friends, with your family, as a family and as a collective, you know, how do you want the season to go? How do you want your holiday spending to look like? Understand that everyone is in a different financial position right now with interest rates where they are, mortgage rates where they are, you know, real estate prices where they are, the stock market and, and how that's performed throughout the year. People are feeling this. They are feeling more stressed about money than they probably ever have. So having these types of conversations may actually provide some relief to other family members who feel that, oh, well, just because every year we we do this lavish spend on gifts, you know, that doesn't have to be the case every time. It doesn't have to be that you're not going to contribute or give them a gift, but maybe the gift has something, a different type of value to it. Maybe it's, you know, going for a long walk in, in, in the park with, you know, with a coffee and a, and a pair of mittens as a gift versus a lavish gift of what you normally spend. Um, you know, maybe it's collectively contributing or helping, you know, families that don't have food over the holidays or doing some Christmas hampers or some baskets for people who are needy. So gifting is about contributing to people. It's about contribution. It doesn't always have to come down to the dollars. It comes down more to the cents. Robin, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and uh, breaking down how we can recognize when we are uh, influenced by the people around us to spend more than we can afford and, and the way to have those conversations. And I think if any year it's appropriate to have the conversation about this year, maybe we should scale back on how much we spend. I think this is the year that everybody would be open to uh, listening to it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. That's Robin Thompson. She is a certified financial planner and a money expert. Robin Thompson is a certified financial planner and money expert. Coming up, how much is your employer spending on you during the holidays? Turns out quite a bit. We find out more after the break. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. What do you want? from your boss for Christmas. Depending on your employer, you could be getting hundreds of dollars in gifts, but are they what you really want and need? 
The Amazon Business Holiday Study shows despite how expensive life is right now, the spirit of generosity prevails with employers. To talk about this, we are joined by Matt Busbridge. He is Country Manager at Amazon Business Canada. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rubina. So you heard there, hundreds of dollars. So how generous are employers going to be this holiday season? Yeah, surprisingly so. Uh, despite the sort of tough t- economic times we're facing, we found that many employers are sort of looking uh, to recognize the importance of maintaining the morale and, and really recognize their team's efforts during this time. So the survey that we just conducted uh, found that they're actually feeling quite generous. And two thirds of business owners plan to give end of year gifts to their employees. And what's more, over half of them intend to spend more this year than last year. Uh, We also found that employers plan to spend an average of $353 per employee on gifts, and there's really a wide spectrum of budgets. 21% of them are planning to spend 50 or less, and 45% are ready to splurge uh, with budgets exceeding $150. So it's pretty evident that employers are willing to go the extra mile to make their employees feel appreciated. And finally, The study found that half of Canadian business owners plan to give gifts to their clients and to their vendors in addition to their employees. So sort of a growing trend of spreading holiday cheer to all stakeholders, uh, despite the tough times out there. That's a really surprising uh, revelation, because I would think that with everything that you're talking about, tough times, you know, economically, businesses also suffering with higher interest rates, higher cost of doing business, that they may be cutting back. Do you think part of it has to do with the fact that we have sort of had three years of sort of a weird holiday where things were shut down, we couldn't get together, it was hard to show appreciation to your employees because there simply was very few ways that you could do that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I think that you might be onto something. You know, with my own team uh, here at Amazon Business, uh, we've sort of taken the opportunity to um, get back together. We're back in the office again and spending more time kind of collaborating on behalf of customers. Our, our own kind of holiday gifting is uh, Amazon swag that we sent out to all of our team. They got to choose from kind of different items. And we found that sort of that's kept them engaged and excited to come to work and, and uh, innovate on behalf of their customers. So, yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah, yeah, I think that that has something to do with it. I mean, even uh, for Canadians who are cutting back this year, uh, just with their family parties, they still want to get together because we're sort of just sick and tired of sort of being on our own and getting together and celebrating the holidays is, is is really the focus. It does cost money. And it's nice to hear that companies, some companies at least, are willing to spend quite a bit. Are there kinds of gifts that employers are giving their employees? You talk about how, you know, Amazon employees getting Amazon swag. But what did your survey find? You know, what are what can employers, employees rather, expect this year? Yeah, so we found that employers are giving a variety of different gifts to their employees. Uh, gift cards and cash bonuses are the most common gifts on employers' lists, and 50% of employers we surveyed are planning to give gift cards and 40%, just about 40% cash bonuses. But employees have their own wish list, and most of them actually, 80% wanted a cash bonus, and just short of 50% were expressing their love for gift cards. And uh, 37% told us that they want the gift of time through extra vacation days. That's something actually we do at Amazon every once in a while, too. And uh, with remote work still pretty prevalent, uh, a lot of employers are choosing to mail gifts to their employees to ensure sort of that personal touch. And gift cards and and cash bonuses might be popular because there's no shipping costs. Um, And uh, sort of for to be really personal for their employees, employers can actually uh, select gifts online 
that provide the employee's address and, and Amazon Business actually uh, can handle a lot of that, including the packaging, shipping and delivery logistics. So we're seeing a lot of um, our customers kind of use us for this employee gifting program. Um, we talked a little bit about holiday parties. They can be expensive depending on where you hold your work holiday party and what you serve um, at the event. Um, can we expect more holiday parties this year? Are employers in the mood to uh, to get uh, their employees together and be festive? And that may be a way for them to show their appreciation um, on top of maybe some swag and some other gifts. Yeah, there's, there's actually a mixed outlook on holiday parties this year. Half of Canadian business owners plan to host them for their employees. And those who are not hosting tell us that the reasons they're not doing so are to save money or just a preference to show appreciation a different way. And that might be gift giving. Uh, and Amazon Business Canada, we have a little tradition to do a sort of holiday lunch. We like to do it over lunch because it it's more inclusive for folks that have families or longer commutes. And we actually do karaoke every year. So it's kind of a nice way to say thank you to, to our team for all the tireless work and effort they do um, on behalf of their customers. And then we'll all take a, a much needed break, I'm sure, uh, towards the end of December. I know when I uh, sometimes get gifts from my employer, it's not really something I need. It's maybe something that I end up saying thank you for, but then I go home and I kind of shove it into my desk or on a shelf somewhere. Um, is there gifts that employees prefer? I mean, you talked about uh, gift cards and other things that are a little bit more flexible because you can go out and get whatever you want. But it, was there something in the survey that revealed like if an employer really just wants to make their employees happy, this is what they should be they should be getting them for the holidays? Yeah, we, we saw that employees have very diverse preferences relative to gifts. Majority of them want cash bonuses, but half of them would love to receive gift cards, which kind of gives them flexibility to, you know, choose whatever they want. And a very popular request is extra vacation days, uh, sort of for that well-deserved break. Um, and there's also a gender divide in terms of gifts preferences. Uh, women, but 55% are significantly more likely than men to prefer gift cards. And uh, men are more likely than women to desire technology items. And what we sort of see in some of this data is that providing gifts to employees, even when it's tough economically, provides tremendous value. It, it boosts morale, it fosters loyalty, enhances productivity. And so that sort of appreciation and recognition I think employers can create a more positive work environment, supports their employees during challenging periods, and ultimately will lead to a more resilient and I think long-term successful organization. We're speaking to Matt Busbridge. He's country manager at Amazon Business Canada about a new survey that they did that shows that employers are in the mood to give this holiday season. Uh, is there a gift that you shouldn't give? Maybe this is more a, an opinion of yours, uh, being a manager at Amazon. You know, employers should just stay away from certain kinds of gifts to, to, to their employees because maybe they're, they're not something that their employees would appreciate. You know, that's <laughs> that's a... That's a tough question to answer. Uh, there certainly probably are a couple that, that might not be ideal, but I, I'd sort of say stick to gift cards. Those are just always going to make people happy. There, there's tons of flexibility. Um, we do a lot of that at Amazon Business, give out gift cards to our team. Uh, it just gives people the chance to get whatever they want. So I think that's kind of a safer bet that's going to make your team feel, feel happy and, and feel appreciated and, and continue to be engaged. 
Yeah. Or, you know, I, I feel like if you're, the gift is too personal, it may also stress uh, the, the employer out by trying to find, you know, what size somebody is. And it may be inappropriate to kind of give personal gifts uh, to, to your employees. It's, it's better they all get the same thing so that there is no feeling of, you know, this person's gift was better or this person was appreciated more. Uh, you know, almost like, almost not like I am with my kids. I just make sure that I spend the exact same amount of money on all of them. So none of them complain <laughs> yeah. later about the fact that yeah. one got more or less. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about what you will be doing with your, uh, your employees, uh, this, this holiday season. You talked a little bit about Amazon swag. Is, is there other plans to, to sort of show your appreciation to your employees? Yeah. So again, we're getting together for uh, our holiday lunch, which we do every year. We're also spending some time, uh, volunteering in our community. That's something we do a lot of at, across all of Amazon, but at Amazon business, uh, in, here in Toronto, that's where most of our team is. Uh, we're doing a number of vol volunteer activities. That's something we kind of do throughout the year. That kind of brings us together, makes us feel good. It's kind of a nice time to do that, a nice time of year to do that. Um, and then, yeah, we'll take a, I think, as I said, a well-deserved break at the end of the month. And then we come back in January, uh, you know, foot down the accelerator to, uh, to help our business customers by whatever they need uh, to run their businesses um, for the year. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really nice to have this sort of feel-good story uh, during the holidays. And uh, anyone listening, uh, if, you know, if their boss is uh, planning on uh, spending some money, this, you know, they may have something they, they can look forward to depending on where they work uh, when it comes to either a gift or maybe a great uh, holiday get-together. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today. That's Matt Busbridge. He is country manager at Amazon Business. Uh, really interesting that their study found that employers are willing to spend an average of $353 per employee. Now, that could be a mix of things. It could be gifts that they're giving, could be bonuses, could also be part of the holiday party because that's an expense. Depends on where the holiday party is being held as well. But it does show that, you know, depending on where you work, that some employers are willing to go above and beyond to really show that they appreciate their employees and uh, that they uh, really, you know, want to recognize the kind of work that they have been doing because it's been a weird time for all of us. We're finally back to some kind of normal, but I think we still are remembering everything that we've been through in the last couple of years and how uh, we've had to adjust quite a bit uh, to the way that we work every day. We are going to take a bit. We are going to take a break. Coming up, PEI is exploring the idea of starting a universal basic income on the island. After the break, I talk about what this would look like and how much money residents on PEI living in poverty could stand to receive. I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina Ahmed Hawk. The best things in life are free. It's called the Guaranteed Basic Income Benefit, and it's being proposed for residents of Prince Edward Island. A coalition of public servants, politicians, advocates, all from PEI and across the country, say that this would lift the majority of those living in poverty on PEI out of that situation, that it would bring most people who live alone. So 90% of people who live alone would uh, in poverty would be lifted out of that situation. It would help children. 65% of children would be uh, out of poverty because of this benefit. And most people who are living with a disability would be lifted out of poverty as well. Now, it can be controversial to talk about guaranteed income. A lot of people argue that a guaranteed income incentivizes people to sit at home and not work. 
But the argument that this proposal is making is that it does the opposite, that it gets people out of a situation where they are living in financial stress and they can make better decisions about their lives that then in the long term will benefit them. What they say this this, uh, guaranteed income would be is $19,000 and change for single adults and $27 and change for uh, two adults in one family. Now, this would not affect the Canada Child Benefit, which, as you know, is income tested. So uh, the less your income is, the more children you have under the age of 12 and 6, uh, the more you child benefit you get, more for those who are children under 6 and uh, a little bit less for those 6 to 12. But still, the more children you have under that age, uh, the more benefit you qualify for, depending on your uh, household income. And the argument is, and this has been proven across the globe, is that when you give people a guaranteed income that allows them to have a basic lifestyle, we're not talking about making people millionaires or even middle class. We're talking about people being lifted out of a situation where they could be on the street or they could be in a basic one-bedroom apartment. When you do that, you give people the dignity and the respect that they deserve to go and find a job that they can do with the skills that they have, rather than making a decision in haste, not really having time to uh, retrain themselves if maybe they lost their job because their skills are now out of date and they need to go and retrain themselves. So this gives them the opportunity to do that, where they then are able to give back to the community that has given to them when they were living in poverty. Uh, It also says that it increases happiness levels. So this was tested in England across a number of different communities, and they found that happiness levels in those communities went up as people felt more comfortable with their own own financial situation. Now, the critics that say that this will uh, create a situation where people don't want to work, they're saying that actually it will incentivize people to work because when you make money, it will only claw back 50 cents of every dollar you make up to a certain threshold. So you will be in pocket getting more money when you go to work. So the incentive really is, is I don't want to live this basic lifestyle. I want to live, you know, I want to buy a house. I want to buy a car. I want to do other things, which you cannot do on a basic income. You can only really live a very, very simple life. But this will allow you to get on your feet and temporarily have some help that will allow you to then uh, get a better job, make a bigger income, and then you pay income tax and help the society in general. Um, So this is being proposed on PEI. The federal government is being asked to buy into this. It would cost uh, $188 million over five to seven years, so it's not cheap. They're saying they're going to get the money by taxing those who are in the higher income brackets. So that's how they would pay for this program. Um, But it would, uh, over the long term, have a generally positive effect on the community. You'd see less homelessness. You'd see less pressure on food banks, which are overwhelmed right now. Uh, There's a food bank in Toronto I spoke to where they said what they used to spend before the pandemic on a year's worth of food, they now spend in one month the same amount of money because some fresh food does not get donated. So they have to buy that on a regular basis. And the cost of that has gone up 12 times because more people are visiting the food bank because they are living in poverty and they cannot afford the food that grocery stores are selling or they can't afford all of it. And uh, more people are also visiting food banks. So that's increasing the pressure and the cost of the food has gone up as well. So all of those things in combination 
are making it more expensive uh, for food banks. And for those who visit the food banks, it's making it um, more, more and more difficult for them to get the food that they need. So this would take some pressure off of those groups that are helping those that are living in uh, poverty. Of course, those groups will still exist for those who need it, but it would take some pressure off so that they can do the work that they uh, that they that they need to do to get to the the people that need the help the most. Uh, this has uh, this is rather also being proposed in Boston in the United States. Uh, they their city council is talking about it right now about a way to alleviate some stress when it comes to the situation with homelessness and poverty in their city. Uh, so it's not something that is just unique to PEI. It's been tested across the globe in many different ways. Uh, the England example that I gave you, they found that happiness went up and they also found that people were able to do the jobs that they were qualified to do, make more money, and that it generally had a positive effect on individuals um, who were able to access a guaranteed basic income um, while they were unable to make money or while they were unable to um, make as much money as they need in order to uh, stay above the poverty line. Something to think about, and we definitely will be following this story more carefully to see if it actually comes to fruition and how it could be implemented in other places in Canada, especially where life is more expensive, like Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, other provinces where uh, the north, where it's more expensive uh, for uh, Canadians to uh, to rent an apartment, to buy food and all the other things. And that if you are already living on the financial fringe, as I like to say, or just below poverty, the poverty line, it's already really difficult for you to get all the things that you need or financially afford the things that you need. I really enjoyed our conversations today. Uh, Robin Thompson, I've been following her for years. She's a certified financial planner. She writes a lot of interesting stuff on her own personal website. Um, and this uh, article really stuck out to me. And we all know that the people we spend the most time with affect the way we think, affects our politics, it affects the things that we uh, things that we like and dislike, affects the what, things that we wear, things that, you know, the concerts we go to, everything, right? But um, the, the effect that it has in our money, sometimes I don't think we realize how big of an effect it will have. If you are hanging out with big spenders, you're more likely going to get sucked into that and start spending more. And if you like that, if you're someone who can afford to spend on those things and that's something that brings you value, then that's okay as long as you're not going into debt. I'm not someone who says you need to save just for the sake of saving. But if you've paid all your bills and you've got some money in your retirement savings account, you've got some money for a rainy day, you can go on and spend that money. You deserve it. And you can absolutely hang out with people that act like that too. But if you're going into debt with people who are spending more money than you can afford, then you really have to rethink whether this is a good relationship for you. It can be hard. I have some childhood friends who are doing very well. And sometimes the things that they want to do, I can't afford to do. So you have to sometimes have that conversation with them saying, hey, can we do something that's a little bit more frugal or a little bit more economical so that we can all be involved? Uh, I don't know if you guys watch Friends, but there's a really great episode of Friends where it shows three of them who have full-time jobs doing really well. Um invite the other three out for dinner. And then it becomes an issue because I think it's Joey, uh, Rachel, and Phoebe who are the ones that can't afford this restaurant. And so then they're telling their, uh, their other three friends, uh, Chandler, uh, Chandler, Monica, and Ross, that you know, you're asking us to do stuff that we can't afford. And I think that that's a really uh, good comment. Uh, that, that's something that resonates with all of us, right? Where sometimes our friends don't really recognize what our financial situation is. Um, also, really nice to have a feel-good story from uh, Matt Busbridge from Amazon talking about a new survey that they did, uh, the holiday study, they call it, uh, that shows that employers are expected to spend $353 on average 
on their employees this holiday season. So I'll be waiting for my $353 gift from my employer. I've put it out there. You can get my address. I'm sure they've got it somewhere and send it my way or maybe invite me to a holiday party. But I think that that's a good uh, new story that really shows that companies are recognizing that employees have been working very hard for the last few years. And since it's now safe to get together, it's a good idea to spend the money uh, to really show that appreciation. I think it builds camaraderie. It builds loyalty. It really shows that companies care. Um, hopefully it's not just lip service, you know, for sometimes you feel like, oh, you know, are they just doing this because they have to? But if they're doing it because they want to, and they're really showing appreciation, I think that, that it's a good, uh, good thing for employees. It builds morale and it makes uh, employees feel seen. I want to say that I see you. I really appreciate you from t for tuning in today, for listening to the program. I hope you got something out of it. You can always reach me on all my different social channels. Just direct message me. I'll try to get back to you. If anything that you heard in the program or anything you think that we should be talking about, let me know. We are going to be back here next week. Same time, same place, same channel. I hope you tune in. Thank you to you, the listener. Thanks to our technical producer, James Petrovic. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck. This is for what it's worth.